Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Sir Colin Blakemore, who is Professor of Neuroscience at City University of Hong Kong. His research has focused on vision, development, and plasticity of the brain, and on neurodegenerative diseases. He's a member of, the 12, member of 12 scientific academies, including the Royal Society and the Chinese Academy of Engineering, and his honors include both the Faraday Prize and the Ferrier from the Royal Society. Welcome, Colin. Hello, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Um, and, and you're doing it from across the world in Hong Kong. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, hopefully our technology holds. Um, I want to start with one of your uh, uh, older papers uh, in 2006, entitled The First Neurons of the Human Cerebral Cortex. You say, uh, we describe a distinctive widespread population of neurons situated beneath the pile surface of the human embryonic forebrain, even before complete closure of the neural tube. And these predecessor um, cells include the first neurons seen in the primordium of the cerebral cortex before the onset of local neurogenesis. So, Colin, uh, I don't know a lot about this, but is this sort of the nature seeding the brain, so to speak? Well, you know, there's a lot of interest in how the process of organizing the cerebral cortex is achieved. Um, the cortex is well, arguably the most complicated part of the brain. The brain is the most complicated part of the body. So this is a real challenge for, for biology, to try to explain the developmental organization of such an extraordinarily complicated um, structure. And what's yeah. become apparent in the last few years is that populations of neurons which are mainly transient, that is, they appear, they're born, they do a job and they die, are very important in this process of organization. Um, one particular population uh, called Cajal retius cells is known to move in across the surface of the cortex um, and it um, produces substances which help the formation of the layers of the cortex 
mutations in which this um, uh, this population of cells does not function properly produce disorganized cortical layering. So most neurons that are going to make up the ultimate structure of the cortex are born locally within an epithelium, a neuroepithelium, that is a large collection of stem cells, of neural stem cells, which yeah. go on progressively over a long period of time to generate the neurons that make the cortex. But we're now learning about these population, other populations of neurons that migrate in mainly across the surface and influence the process. And we, we've discovered, when I say we, um, my colleagues in this study are Irina uh, Bystron, who's a, a Russian uh, neuroscientist who's been in my lab for the last 20 years, and uh, Pasko Rakic, a very uh, eminent developmental neurobiologist at Yale. And we found yeah. this um, remarkable population of nerve cells, never seen before, and, and important, never seen in any other species, even even now. So, mm. uh, it, it was a big thing to say, but it's conceivable that they're uniquely human. A large population, they, they spread across the, the whole of the, the forebrain, forming an, a network across the, the surface of the brain before neurons are being generated locally. And indeed, to, to kind of jump to the chase, we think that their function could conceivably be to switch on and to organize the timing of local production of neurons. And they're really interesting in many respects. They, they're certainly neurons. They express all of the characteristics, molecular characteristics of post-mitotic neurons. That is, uh, neurons derived from stem cells. They're not capable of division themselves, but they don't have an axon. Um, yeah. So they're probably, you know, not sending information, early electrical inf inf information anywhere. They have a long, a very long process, but it's not an axon. It's like the processes that very immature neurons extend in order to move to a new position within the brain. But these are traveling over huge distances in the brain. Um, so so they don't the same sort of neurogenesis process for the rest of the neurons? They Well, we know where they're born, and they are born by the same kind of uh, neurogenetic process as the rest of the brain. But then they, they, rapid, they just move away from the area in which they're born, very low down in the, in the, in the brain, mm. by the way, um, in the midbrain. They, and they move upwards across the surface of the cortex in this very unusual way. So this sounds like a fairly important sort of initial conditions uh, for the brain. Do, do we know of any sort of disease state that that result from perhaps the absence of this? Well, of course, that's an obvious question to ask these days. As soon as you find an interesting population or interesting molecule, <laughs> you knock it out and you see what, the, what happens to the poor mouse. But there you are. They don't exist in mice. Yeah. So this is this is extremely difficult work. Well, I, I should, you know, say uh, this involves studying human embryos between about three and a half and typically about five, six weeks of age. So these are uh, um, embryos derived; they're uh, they're derived by abortion, um, but yeah. but these tiny, tiny human embryos, a millimeter or so long extremely difficult to retrieve and to to work with um and of course uh, 
you you can't do mutations on them. You can't breed from them. You can't you can't do genetic analysis. It's extremely difficult to do the kinds of things that are absolutely routine uh, when you can use experimental animals. Right, right. So, so so we can observe them. You say this is uniquely human, uh, but but as you say, it's really difficult. Uh, to see um, what the absence or some sort of fault in that process could lead to. Um, With, yeah, without, without um, spontaneous um, mutations or inherited conditions that involve this population of neurons, without the capacity to analyze them, it's very, very difficult to know what defects would be produced by their absence. But since it's a transient population, even yeah. if there were, and there are a very wide variety of developmental cognitive neural disorders, even if you could screen those, first of all, what would you screen them for in molecular terms without knowing the particular characteristics of these, these neurons? Um, and secondly, how would you know whether they're present or not and how they've gone wrong since they are a transient population and therefore presumably can't be seen in mature um, uh, humans? It's a really tricky problem. Um, yeah, all, yeah. all you can do is work with the kinds of techniques, um, the antibody-based uh, techniques for identifying molecules that are expressed in these cells and look at their behavior to the extent that you can analyze their behavior from, 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 uh, from, from fixed tissue, not living tissue. So it's, tri it's tricky. Uh, it's been a very long... We are continuing the work. I mean, at the moment, as I said, we now know... Um, where this population of cells comes from in the brain. It comes from a small um, area of neuroepithelium in, in the hypothalamus, uh, yeah. which generates the whole population that moves across the brain. We know, for instance, from very recent work, that they move into the eye. They move through the eye stalk of the developing embryo very early. Um, into the eye. So they probably perform a very general function, but we don't yet for sure know what it is. That's interesting, Colin. My, the, the infant does not have a lot of use for her eyes early on, right? <laughs> oh, this is, this is not only before the, the, you know, there's no production of any neuron in the eye at the time that these cells evade the eye. Yeah, okay, okay. And so do we know anything about any sort of signaling that happens in this population? Well, what we do know is that the, the, well, the long processes that I that I mentioned that these cells yeah. extend the, the processes, the forward pointing processes through which the cell body migrates across the brain. These processes seem to attach themselves um, under the, the, the surface of the pier of the brain, the very top of the brain surface, and they make intimate contact with the processes of neural stem cells in that region. So there's the opportunity, and, and when we intend to focus on the nature of that contact and whether there's exchange of molecules through that contact, for instance. But it is conceivable that these cells are informing the local stem cells by molecules which, are, which move across that, that tight, presumably tight junction between the two types of cells. Hmm. Is, is it the right way to think of this, Colin, that these are sort of pre-programmed to set the initial conditions for that environment to start the... I think that's, that's, a reasonable, yeah. that's a reasonable assumption. And as I said, our working hypothesis is that they are coordinating uh, the, 
the generation, the local generation of neurons, they're switching on neuro, neurogenesis. And this could conceivably explain why they're present only in, in animals with very large brains. I suspect they are present in, 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 in monkeys, in, in particular New World monkeys um, and other primates, but we're not sure yet. And maybe it's just a particular problem of making a brain which is so enormously large, even at a very early stage, a problem that, um, that other mammals don't have. Right, right. Yeah, I want to go into another paper. Um, tactile perception recruits functionally related visual areas in the late blind. Yes. Uh, say where blind people touch braille characters, blood flow increases in visual areas leading to speculation that visual circuitry assists tactile discrimination in the blind. So th these are people who used to see and then became blind. Yes, exactly. This is, this, and, is work, this is work that I did with Manu Goyle when he was um, visiting my lab. He's now a neurologist at um, Washington University in St. Louis. Um, yeah. Basically, our question was, um, could people who had who had had vision when they were young, the first few years, um, retain the kinds of analytical functions that the visual parts of the cerebral cortex have, but deploy them to serve the brain in other ways. You know, there's been growing, growing evidence for the role of plasticity in the brain over the last 50 years, well, during my research lifetime, really. Um, yeah with the initial observation that the brain is highly plastic early on in life, particularly the visual system as the animal first opens its eyes and looks around, its visual cortex is capable of being influenced and changed by what the animal sees. Uh, but subsequently, others have shown that through different sorts of mechanisms, the adult brain is also highly plastic. And we wonder whether that plasticity, that capacity to reorganize in functionally valuable ways could help people who are blind and could account for these, well, at least partly anecdotal stories that the other senses of blind people are enhanced. Mm. And, and we don't see this in, uh, in people born blind, right? That's right. And I think what that tells you is that the, um, the establishment of the detailed if you like, computational properties of visual parts of the cortex depend on early vision. And there's lots of evidence that that's true in animals. And, and this could now be a reflection of, of, of that. But once we've had sufficient vision early in life to generate through local changes in circuitry within the brain, the computational properties of visual areas of the brain, they can retain those, 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 uh, those algorithmic properties, which can yeah. then be used by other sensory systems in the brain. That's what this paper seems to suggest. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating that, um, so when people touch Braille characters, you say, uh, the areas that, that light up in, in a typical uh, visual stimuli seem to light up, it, it's almost like, the brain has a process uh, because these people could uh, did have vision early on. So it has learned the process yeah. and now it's getting stimuli through a different mechanism, but 
the way that it can understand it is really going back to the process that it knows. Exactly. I mean, just to just to explain the experiment briefly, what yeah. we asked people to do was to touch um, recognizable or distinctive um, stimuli. Um, and the two main types of stimuli that are relevant were the face of a doll placed into the, into the hand of the person, the face side downwards, or a moving object with the same kind of surface characteristics as the, uh, as the doll, or, or the same, do, um, same doll-shaped, doll-surface-like uh, amorphous object that was static. So we had three conditions, a static stimulus on the skin, a moving stimulus on the skin, or a recognizable face-like object placed on the skin. And we, we simply asked, you know, was there any part of the brain that was selectively responsive to the face characteristics or to the movement and found that in, in blind people who had had vision when they were young, the areas of the brain that lit up were the visual parts of the brain that deal with the analysis of faces and of visual motion. So somehow the touch system had had captured and taken over, if you like, those processing parts of the visual system, even though these people had never had visual experience for 20 years or more. Yeah, I, I'm... Um, people accuse me, um, Colin, um, you know, I don't know much about how computers work, nor do I know much about how brains work. Uh, but, but sometimes I, I, uh, I make, uh, you know, similarities between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, it seems to imply that uh, the brain is doing some localized processing in that visual uh, area. Uh, and so it is determining the, the shape of the object or, uh, or the nature of the object, uh, whether it's movement or face or whatever. Yeah. And would you say that processing is, is happening locally, which means that once the brain specializes that way, it really cannot reprogram that? Well, I think that you know, <laughs> substantial reprogramming might be possible early in life. Uh, mm. But, but uh, no, what's, as you say, I think what's most remarkable about this observation is the stability of the local computational properties that are established in these visual, visual regions. I mean, to my mind, and from the point of view of comparison with computers, one of the most interesting aspects of this study is, the, is, is that it obviously requires a very long-range connectivity within the brain. The part of the brain that directly receives information from the skin is probably, you know, certainly many centimeters away from the region that is normally used to process face information from the eyes. So when these blind people are touching face objects and there is then activity in the visual region, there must be a connection that mediates that. Do we pick up any delay in that at all? Uh, there will certainly be a delay. There's a delay in any conduction process in the brain, which again, by the way, challenges the, the simple comparison with computers. There's bound to be some delay, <laughs> but there's no, uh, yeah, there's no indication of that in the results, largely because the technique itself is so slow. Um, fMRI is an extremely slow um, process. It takes seconds to generate a signal. 
So it's very, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to look at very rapidly changing processes with that method. But it's not, um, it's not a delay that is more than expected. Uh, in other words, no. since the stimuli is coming from a different, yeah. uh, different altogether, do we see a higher delay? You know, there are methods for looking at that and we didn't use them. It's an interesting question. But, but just to pursue the point I was making, this does, mean, this does seem to mean that long-range connections within the brain can be redeployed. And that, and that is an area of, of general interest that I have at the moment. The possibility, the possibility, and it sounds almost heretical, that the adult brain can learn to reorganize, reuse, and conceivably even regrow long-range connections um, to, to use them in functionally valuable ways. I mean, one of the areas I'm working on at the moment with colleagues at um, Fudan University um, in, in the, the remarkable new imaging institute set up by uh, Fong Jianfeng, one of the things that we're looking at is, um, is how the system in the brain for involved in reading the word recognition system, which is obviously a visual function, can connect into circuitry that is organized for, um, for understanding and interpreting spoken speech. That obviously has to be, you know, when you read it, when you look at something, you read it, you understand what it is, you read the word, I don't know, cat, and you know your brain knows it's the same kind of thing that's being um, signaled as when you hear the word cat. There's got to be some connection between those. So we're looking at the, the, the connections, the, 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 the connectomics, to use the trendy word, um, for word recognition, with the suspicion that um, since word you human beings have only been reading for a few thousand years, this is not a structure that could be genetically determined. So I think it's a very interesting example of a, a complex, learnt network reorganization within the brain that might involve the growth in, and organization of long-range connections. And my, my understanding is that uh, the, the language production areas in the brain is something that we co-opted uh, later on because, you know, it, it's really a recent phenomenon. And so the brain really didn't design for it, I would imagine, right? Well, when you say recent for, for spoken language, I mean, yes. it's, it's, not, it's not an area I'm, I'm an expert on, but I, I, I think, um, you know, most of the paleoanthropologists would say that it's very likely that the very earliest um, human beings and, and, and earlier hominins um, had the capacity to communicate verbally. Um, they could say things that other human beings understood. Uh, now, that doesn't answer the question of when fully developed, grammatically structured, syntactically based language developed, but it, it, it does imply that um, sounds, utterances were being used for communication before human beings were human beings. Reading, of course, is really quite different. It's a few thousand years old rather than probably hundreds of thousands of years old. But you're quite right. The organization for spoken language had to come from somewhere, um, de novo, although other, other animals to some extent communicate by sounds. There's nothing as sophisticated as, um, as human uh, language. So it is a new development. And it involves structures and connections. And 
you know, massive informational content to program the, the brain to be able to do it, and whether it's all done by genetic organization in modern humans or whether we even to some extent are, are programming the spoken language structure of our brain as well as our reading structure in our brain, I think these are still open questions. Uh, going back to the paper, um, Colin, there's this, this observation that um, people are using visual areas, talking about the late point here, uh, to, to, to actually um, sort of see, does it have any therapeutic um, implications, applications? Well, to the extent that these, con these connections of functional organizations must be acquired by individuals, they're not present in sighted people, it doesn't, the, the visual parts of the brain don't respond in the same way when you touch um, objects, if you can see, then then it implies that that um, they can be changed. If, they, if they're formed by learning, they can be changed by learning. So one possibility is that we could develop methods for enabling blind people to use these connections even more efficiently to help them with the task of um, dealing with the sensory world without vision. And um, there's all sort of cross-circuitry uh, going on, right? So I would imagine just like we are seeing visual, do we see some sort of auditory to tactile kind of cross-circuitry to... Yes, well, the, well, another obvious thing that has been suggested by many people in blind people is that um, is that sounds might connect with with vision in useful ways. Um, we didn't look at that. Other people have and have found similar sorts of results. The reason we chose touch was because the the touch system and the visual system are 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 actually remarkably similar in some respects. They're both used. They're both useful for recognizing the form of objects, the identification of objects. If you pick an object up, as I'm picking up the cu cup of coffee in front of me at the moment. I know that it's a cup, even with my eyes closed. When, when I open my eyes and I look at it in my hands, I know it's the same cup as the cup that I'm holding. So I'm integrating information from those two senses all the time as I manipulate um, um, objects. So we, that's why we thought there might be a particular connectivity between touch and, um, and vision in blind people. Yeah, so, so from an evolutionary perspective, I guess from a safety perspective, uh, this might be something that early homo sapiens had to do. Well, um, well putting, they were putting together yeah. information from the senses, which is, by the way, now a very strong and dominant theme in neuroscience and sensory neuroscience and psychology, um, it, it makes eminent sense. You know, our sense organs are not there to tell us that we've got sense organs. They're there to tell us about the nature of the world. And if I look at a cup and I touch a cup and, uh, and both sensory systems are telling me a cup, that it's a cup, it's eminently sensible that, that information should be organized together in the brain and should end up with a single identification. This really is a cup and in a way it doesn't matter whether I'm seeing it or touching it or even, or even hearing it if I tap the cup. So multi-sensory integration is, uh, is a really dominant theme um, in the organization of the sensory pathways of the brain. Right. 
Yeah, I would imagine, you know, just like an airplane where we have redundant systems, uh, you can reduce errors, you know, by, by having redundancy. This, these are not redundant systems, but it's really working together to possibly reduce the, the error. Well, in, well exactly. Uh, and, and there is very um, interesting research showing that um, information from different senses can be used in highly efficient ways. And when I say efficient, I mean in a Bayesian sense, efficient, that the most yeah. reliable source of information will be adopted by the perceptual system when it tries to interpret, for instance, situations of slight conflict between the different senses. It's, a, it's very, very clever. And yet, could, if I could just digress for a moment, a touch is on another yeah. little experiment that I did a few years ago, um, which I haven't yet published, which tackles a very old question in physiology and psychology, which runs counter to this idea that what, that what the brain really wants to do is to learn about just objects, regardless of, of the sense, particular sense organ responsible for detecting that, that object or that event. And, and the issue is, um, is, is why then we, we know, we have a feeling it is a deep part of our perceptual experience to know which sense organ is giving us a particular experience. When I look yeah. at something, I have absolutely no doubt that I'm seeing it. There's never any confusion. Um, let's say you're driving along a dark road at night and there's something on the road ahead of you. You don't know what it is. It could be a tree. It could be a person lying in the road or a cow or something. Although you don't know what it is, you have absolutely no doubt that you're not hearing it. You're seeing it. Now, what is it that, that gives that understanding of when you're hearing something and seeing something, even when you you do those things simultaneously. A car drives by, you look at it and you hear it. You know that it's a car, yeah. but you also know that it's making a noise and that you can see it. Um, the little experiment was simply to show that we are amazingly good at doing that, right down to the very threshold of detection of a meaningless stimulus. When everything is completely randomized, you can still tell whether that stimulus is a light or a sound. Um, why is that? Why is it? Why, you know, why in a theological sense? I mean, why does the brain bother to cling on to the information about which sense organ has provided this information when, paradoxically, what it's obviously really concerned about is what the thing is out in space, regardless of the sense organ that's given that uh, knowledge? Yeah, I, I was wondering, Colin, is, is there an area in the brain that's sort of a tiebreaker, decision maker, if multiple um, multiple processing uh, or multiple streams of information give conflicting conclusions? Is there some sort of tiebreaker this, that happens? Well, this is a very current and active area. The whole, the whole issue of how decisions are made, including the sensory decisions, and it seems to involve, I mean, clearly involves sensory parts of the brain themselves. The decision-making process is already happening to some extent in the very earliest stages of the processing of, uh, of information. So, for instance, um, even making a very simple judgment of, of, of whether something's moving to the left or to the right, for instance, that judgment can be influenced by your knowledge of the... Um, of any reward associated with one choice or the other. 
So already <laughs> reward systems are somehow influencing very early, early judgment. But it's not just the sensory systems themselves. It, this process extends right through to the frontal, the frontal lobes of the of the cortex, which is probably where ultimately the the decision of which course to follow, which which belief to accept, which decision to make, um, occurs. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, a lot of uncertainty there, a lot of confusion. Uh, I, I keep thinking that it's a miracle that uh, that it actually works. Well, what? Yeah, this is an example. I'm, I, I I hesitate to use the word miracle. It's not in my vocabulary, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the most remarkable things is that as brains expanded, and I'm talking about in evolutionary time terms, as um, animals got bigger and bigger and needed bigger and bigger brains, and we're doing more and more complicated things with them. Although that process involved the kind of a piecemeal accretion of extra bits of stuff doing their own job, somehow they have to create an individual. The, the animal has to work yeah. as a whole. It has to make it, if it's going to, if, a, if a, anything from an amoeba, well, of course, amoeba is not a good example because it doesn't have a nervous system. But, you know, um, I don't know, a nematode worm right up to a human being has to make a choice about where to go next. It, it can't make two choices or three or four. It's, it does one thing. So at some point, there has to be a centralization of an ultimate decision maker which decides what to do. Right, right. We will take a quick break, uh, Colin. When we come back, uh, we talk about your other Thank papers. You. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Colin, we were talking about the brain neurons, specialization in the brain, a lot of cross-circuitry sometimes that happens with different types of stimuli, and really the complexity of the human brain, uh, which, um, which is just mind-boggling. Um, we, we try to get better and better information on it, but every time we find something, it seems like there is more to, <laughs> more to, find, more to find. I want to touch on another paper uh, what synesthesia isn't. So synesthesia is a condition in which a particular sensory stimulus uh, or even a thought of a stimulus, the inducer, reliably elicits not only the normal perceptual experience, but also some additional inappropriate sensation, the concurrent. So we hear a word and we get a sensation of a color or we see a color, we hear something, it could be pretty much any two uh, types of stimuli that gets sort of um, cross-produced um, or cross-represented in the brain, right? Well, it, it, you, everything was fine into the last few words. Yeah. It, it, it certainly isn't pretty much any two, as you say. The vast majority of these strange extra sensations that people with synesthesia get are colors. 
or colors? I think probably more than 90%, 95%, I think is the sort of estimate of these extra concurrent experiences are colors that get attached to things like like sounds or smells or or to other visual experiences. Mm -hmm. So in this respect, there's something special about color, which perhaps is worth discussing at some yeah. point. Yeah. Is it, um, is it because the visual system, um, am I correct in, in, in thinking that the visual system is the most complex one in the brain? Well, I, I'm a visual chauvinist. I work on vision, so of course I'll say yes. Uh, but, you know, if you just judge it by the volume of brain that's devoted to it, then that's certainly the case in human beings. But, but um, you know, this is an anthropocentric um, view. Um, if you were a bat, you would say that's nonsense. You know, it's my auditory system that's dominant in my, my brain. I mean, I'm, whatever is developed most in the brain is what the animal needs to use most. And for, for human beings, yes, vision is probably the most complicated thing that we do. Something like 30% of the surface area of your entire cerebral cortex is devoted to, um, to, to vision. Yeah. So is that the reason? Um, so going back to synesthesia, so 30% of the brain devoted to of, system of, of the cerebral cortex, yeah. Of the cerebral cortex, okay. So that implies that the probability of it interfering with other sensations is probably a lot higher than anything else. Yes, but it's color, uh, it's, and it's only color. And, and although color's a lovely experience, I think most people will agree. You look at a black and white photograph, you can still understand, you know what it is, you can judge the form of it, you can recognize people. So color is very much an add-on mm. to visual experience. And that is, I think, the key to understanding this. It is literally something that is added on. And there's a whole range of evidence that that's the case. So the basic analysis of what an object is, where it is, what its three-dimensional shape is, and how it's moving are all done independently. And then color is almost added by the brain as an afterthought. And in evolutionary terms as well, the capacity to use detailed information about color in perception is, is at least within mammals, seems to be a relatively late development. Um, and it, and it, it seems to correspond to the mutation that generated an extra visual pigment in the eye. The appearance of a red sensitive pigment in old world monkeys seems to have triggered a reorganization in the visual areas of the brain as the brain suddenly had the opportunity, realized they had the opportunity to analyze the range of colors and to use them in perceptual interpretation. And I think that synesthesia, I mean, this is just a hunch, really, but because of the huge proportion of people who have extra color experiences, this has something to do with the late development of this process, and it doesn't always work appropriately. Right. Do all mammals see in color? <laughs> all mammals, as far as I know, should in principle have the ability to discriminate colors because all that you need to do that is have more than one light catching pigment in the cones of your eyes. Mm. If you had only one, like we have only one in our rods that operate at night, you can't see color at night. And the reason for that is that uh, the, a single pigment, which is just catching light over a range of wavelengths, can't provide information about both brightness 
and wavelengths. It just provides a signal saying there's something there. But as soon as you've got two different pigments with different spectral sensitivity overlapping each other, responding to different parts of the spectrum, with a, but with an overlap in the middle, then by looking at the differential signal from those two types of pigment, you, the ratio of activity, you can judge both brightness and color. That's the principle of color vision. But curiously, although most mammals have blue sensitive and green sensitive pigments that overlap, and, and those mammals which have been tested can learn to use that information after a huge effort of learning, they don't seem to deploy it every day in their, in their visual um, activity. And they don't have specialized parts of their cortex for analyzing it. And when you suddenly you jump to old world monkeys, which have got this extra red sensitive pigment as well, you suddenly find that they're using it in just the same way that human beings do. They can make instant color judgments like we do. And they have specialized re regions of the visual cortex, which are devoted to color analysis. All of that happened very recently in evolutionary terms. Right, right. So is synesthesia sort of an overactive color system or, or not? Well, that's part of the, 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 the question that, that um, Mary Ellen Linnell, who's a psychiatrist now in psychiatry department in, in Cambridge, and I asked when we wrote this paper a few years ago, ago um, called What synesthesia isn't yeah. you're really asking what you know what's the essence of this phenomenon where is it coming from is it a genetic disturbance how common is it how do we define it what's it for does it have any value are people who are setting in some ways you know advantaged compared with uh, the rest of us right. those sorts of questions what's the incidence rate well it, it, much, much higher than I think most people could imagine. Mm. Um, around between about four and six percent, depending oh. on the experts you look at. Huge. I mean, when, when I give lectures on this um, with more than, you know, 30, 40 people in the audience, I, I always ask, I describe the phenomenon and then say, well, is there anyone here who, who has had these funny experiences? And always, you know, one in 30 or, or better hands goes up. And then I said, well, did you know that it has a name and that other people don't have it? And it's just amazing how many people don't know. Um, is there anything unusual in, let's say, opening a newspaper and seeing every letter as if it was colored? <laughs> That's very common. That's very common. Perhaps one and a half percent of the population have that wow. um, colored uh, grapheme uh, synesthesia in which black and white letters, the alphabet and numbers, appear to be colored. Hmm. Was there any, any sort of evolutionary advantage? <laughs> well, that is a controversial um, issue. Personally, I think that um, the question is very much open. The yeah. fact that so many people have got it immediately makes you think, well, there must be some, so why hasn't this been selected against? Although it's rather hard to see what the disadvantages would be, so maybe it's just kind of, you know, it's just an epiphenomenon in a way. It's not important to evolution that some people have got this quirk. Um, but there has been speculation that it might somehow be useful. For instance, you know, if the brain could attach colors to features of an image that cannot themselves be easily discriminated, but if the brain could do it, then it could use the color 
as a way of distinguishing those things when other people couldn't distinguish them. Mm. But uh, and that, that argument has been made by my good friend and colleague, V.S. Ramachandran, uh, with some evidence, um, but evidence that, that personally I was not able to, to uh, and others were not able to reproduce e easily. But it also, in any case, leads to a kind of circularity because um, the, in order to attach colors to features of an image that couldn't be discriminated by the person directly, the brain would have to be capable of discriminating those things in order to know which color to attach to them. So if the brain's capable of discriminating them to the extent that it can attach red to one part and green to another, why don't we see the originals as being different without the extra color attached to them? So that's kind of, um, you know, a hand-waving armchair um, argument, but I think it carries some, some weight. And, and, and I would say that the, the balance of view would be that, um, that that particular feature of synesthesia doesn't seem to give a big advantage. And yet you're left with the fact that, you know, 5% of the population have this phenomenon. And it's hard to believe that that would be true if it didn't confer some kind of advantage. It, it's, it's systematic, right? Meaning if, if somebody with this condition always sees the letter R as red, he or she will always see that, right? It won't turn to green. Uh, it's not random in any way. Well, it's not. It's not uh, this, this is the basis of the so-called test of genuineness, which was introduced by Simon Baron Cohen, who's a psychiatrist in Cambridge, which has become the, the hallmark, the defining characteristic of synesthesia. Um, and, and by the way, which transformed it from being a, an odd rather suspicious phenomenon in, the, in, 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 psycho, in psychology textbooks that was not really taken very seriously, which transformed it into a real phenomenon. The fact is that, yes, if someone, for instance, sees letters of the alphabet as being distinctively colored, you can ask them to match that apparent color, that illusory color against a real colored surface, right? To make a match bring them back without any warning months or even years later and they'll give pretty much precisely the same match yeah. so this is something which is you know very solid and, and that's great evidence it's a real phenomenon one of the issues in this paper with mary ellen uh, linnell as i mentioned is that we asked really deeply whether that's a necessary characteristic if if people went around seeing the letter b bright red one one day and bright green the next day it would still make it an interesting phenomenon even mm -hmm. if it's not highly reproducible and there are examples where that seems to be the case where the um, experience seems to be very real and just the same as for someone which someone who can produce highly reliable responses but in some individuals they're not or some circumstances they're not so highly reliable is that synesthesia or not and equally, um, it turns out that there is a condition in, a, in the, that synesthesia seems to blend into natural experience um, yeah. in a way that maybe hesitate when you ask what fraction of the population have it. Because it turns out that all of us have various forms of what we call implicit synesthesia, mm. that we recognize associations 
between certain things and other sort, sorts of sensory experience, although we, we don't have the extra sensory experience. So for instance, if you ask people, well, um, do you think that this tall building um, is equivalent to a low sound or a high sound? And this, this little bungalow down here, is that a low sound or a high sound? A huge fraction of the population will say, oh, the short building is a low sound, low pitch. <laughs> And it's high pitch. And then you say, well, are you hearing those sounds? Of course, they say, that's nonsense. Of course, I'm not hearing it. But we have a very strong tendency to have uh, associated sensory impressions without the perceptual experience, without the, the qualia, as the philosophers would, would say. We have, we have this deeply embedded range of shared um, uh, implicit experiences. You listen to a piece of music, ask people what impressions they're getting from the music, and there'll be amazing concordance. Oh, that's a terribly sad piece of music. Oh, that made me feel very happy. That made me excited. I mean, people yeah. share those same kinds of impressions. Um, but, you know, not that they, you know, they think that the music literally is 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 carrying some kind of extra stimulus around it. These are impressions that are generated internally by the sound. Yeah, I, I can see some advantages, Colin, in the modern context. For instance, if I had this condition, um, and let's say it's it's about letters um, in text, uh, I will be able to read text. I would imagine faster. Uh, because I can see words. Um, I, I'm, I'm speculating here, uh, probably by pattern finding in a, in a much faster way. Uh, well, that doesn't, and that people have looked at that, of course, and that doesn't, doesn't hold. In fact, I think others would argue that, that the dis potential distraction <clears throat> by every letter being a different color might actually impede reading. I don't think either interpretation turns out to be correct okay. um one thing i've heard one person speculate one person with synesthesia speculate about a, a benefit and interestingly uh, this 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 guy is blind um blind from uh, i think about the age of six or so he had visual synesthesia before he came became blind he rem remembers that his family too and since he became blind, he's developed all kinds of new synesthesias based on touch. Mm. So actually, this this is you know in some ways is reminiscent of the the experiment that I did with Manu Goyal on 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 uh, in blind people on on um, the relationship between touch and visual processing. And he says that he has almost deliberately developed color associations to help him to organize his knowledge of the world now that he's blind. Mm. For instance, um, he's formed color attachments to all kinds of things that can be organized uh, in groups. For instance, pay scales at work. He knows the pay scales of different types of employees at, of work, not by remembering their salaries, but by seeing them as differently colored. <laughs> so when he knows the job title of someone, the color red or blue or something flashes in his mind. And that's the indication of the status of this person. And the same for musical um, instruments and, and um, divisions in, in the armed forces, for instance, all of which he's had contact with through his life. 
and he's gone through the process somehow of forming a synesthesia um, attached to these different categories. This guy has very rich synesthesia, and that categorization seems to be another very common property. Probably the commonest form of synesthesia is the attachment of colors to words associated with time. So mm. like uh, afternoon, evening, summer, or autumn, or whatever, the times of the year or the day or whatever become colored and unreliably colored in different ways. And then for people who have what's called you know, externalized synesthetic experiences, where the, the things actually appear to them out in the visual field, not just in their heads, then mm. patches of color float around in front of their eyes, related to each other in position along dimensions that correspond to the time scales that they are describing. So for instance, this, um, this um, very bright, very um, an affable, blind synesthete had synesthesia for the days of the week. And he saw these as patches, as 14 patches arranged in an oval in front of him, floating in front of his blind eyes. Mm. Ones on the left corresponding to the days of last week, and the ones on the right corresponding to this week. Just yeah. And with colors that, you know, were extremely reliable, he could name them in detail and, um, and they would be the same month, a month or three months later. Yeah, it makes intuitive sense to me that it's an organizing principle. And like you mentioned, um, if, if features um, of objects uh, or other phenomena that cannot be readily observed can be attached to uh, this sort of an organizing org organization, yes. then you recall, right, potentially. Yes, I think that's a good point. I mean, what, uh, what does red mean to you? Red, red's a symbol and we attach it to things that are dangerous. You know, yeah, traffic lights or to warning signs or whatever. So the redness becomes a, a different form of, a, of attachment to the thing with additional meaning. So yeah, perhaps you're right, we're able to use colors in that distinctive way. Yeah, and maybe Colin, again, uh, total speculation on my part, I wondered early on in a homo sapien survival um, uh, posture, uh, perhaps organizing by color was less cognitively costly. Mm. Um, something that they, you know, the visual system, as you say, is very highly specialized, very highly developed, and and colors might be less costly from an organizing organization principle, perhaps. Um, that's one thing I was thinking about. Other thing I was thinking about is if it is really overactive brain, so to speak, it might have had some survival advantage. You know, uh, if, if you have some association of sound with color, and like you say, red is danger. Mm -hmm. So I associate sound with red and red with danger, mm -hmm. then maybe I can wake up before I'm, you know, I'm eaten up <laughs> by the lion. Yeah, this is an interesting, I think this is interesting speculation. Um, the, we certainly use colors to distinguish and discriminate categories. Um, I remember it suddenly brings up images of being in school and, you know, in English, in British schools, we have this curious system of houses, of subdivisions within schools. 
And they're, they're always recognized by the colors of the ties of the school kids, the neckties, <laughs> neckties that they, they wear. So when you want yeah. to label something, you do it with color because the color itself has, it's sort of neutral in a sense. It doesn't change the appearance of the form, the recognition of the person or the particular clothes that they're wearing or where they're, what part of the visual field they're in or how they're moving around, but it is very distinctive. Mm. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, you know, uh, even the earliest works of art that we know of, and you know that we've we've heard just in the last few weeks of the verification of what seems to be the earliest in in, in Indonesia, a rock painting in Indonesia, for yeah. forty more than forty million years old. Um, I'm sorry, more than forty thousand years old. Um, it's coloured. And it's appropriately colored for the thing that's being represented, namely local warthogs or pigs of some sort. Um, <laughs> why bother if it had been drawn in charcoal on the wall of the cave or just a black pigment, it would still have been recognizable as a, as a pig. Why did even the early artists go to the trouble of using the correct colors? It really seems to suggest that color is, is an important marker, even though it's not is essential for the recognition of form, shape, movement, and so on. Right, right. Is it treatable? I'm sorry, is, is it treatable? Yes. Synesthesia. Well, I mean, you're immediately implying that it's a kind of disease by saying treatable. People who have, <laughs> people who have that uh, actually are rather proud of it and they've got no reason not to be. It's an, and I feel very, having worked a lot with synesthetes, I actually feel very envious. To think that oh, you're... maybe I should ask that, uh, is it inducible then? Is it inducible? That's a different question. And I, <laughs> I think that the color associations without the actual explicit experience are certainly learnable. You can learn associations between imagined, let's say, colors and other, other things, but they never become as solid and real as the experiences of a synesthete. Those experiences are to them just as real as the real thing. But it wouldn't be fun to be able to go to a concert, let's say, hear a <laughs> symphony orchestra playing a piece of music and not only have the stage in front of you and the, and the, the sense of occasion, the people around you and the wonderful sound of the music, but have the visual experiences too, the colours and the flashing mm. and the streaming forms, which some people do, which Kandinsky <laughs> did. I mean, no, Kandinsky, Kandinsky, the abstract um, artist, um, had uh, musical synesthesia. Um, and, and said himself that it was the basis of the composition of his paintings, that he was able to capture the experiences that he was having in those extraordinary abstract works. Mm. So you, your experience, Colin, with uh, people with this condition, um, do they like it or do they find it distracting? Um, well, both certainly happen, but the vast majority of people are quite proud of it. They're not in any way, well, this is a new development perhaps because it now has a name and people recognize that it's not a disease. <laughs> they're, you know, they're quite pleased to, to have it. And there are chat groups on the web. If you go on the web, you'll find chat groups between different types of um, uh, synesthetes comparing their experiences. So I think most people do enjoy it. They don't see any disadvantage in it. And you know, the very fact that there are the big organized groups now who communicate with each other would probably mean that if there were serious disadvantages or for that matter, huge advantages, we would know about it from those groups and we don't. 
Yeah, so I want to go into um, your latest paper, uh, Colin, uh, entitled, I Haven't a Clue, Patients yes. Based on Repetitions and Hints Facilitate Perceptual Experience of Ambiguous Images. Yes. So, so what do you mean? Right. Uh, this, is, this is work that I did quite recently with um, Uri Hertz, who's um, now at the University of Haifa, and with uh, Chris Frith, a really leading cognitive neuroscientist uh, in, in London. We did this together at the Institute of Philosophy, which you might hear as a slightly surprising location to think of research being done, but it's a very progressive institute in the School of Advanced Study in London, which brought us together. We worked on this. Um, basically, what we were asking was, um, can what we see and understand about the world be influenced by things that are said to us or what we're told about it? Can, can we, on the basis of expectation, understand the world more quickly? Yeah, and from a kind of common sense point of view, it's obvious. If you're in a crowd of people and with a friend and you say, oh, look, there's Betty over there. The person immediately begins to look for Betty using some kind of internal representation to guide their search amongst the faces for the particular person that, that, that they know called Betty. So in that case, yeah. the words that I'm speaking, look, there's Betty over there, are somehow influencing the visual system of that person who's listening to them. And this is a could be a very particular, but, but actually for human beings, very important example of what's generally called predictive coding or predictive mechanisms in the brain that the brain might have, have acquired the ability to overcome some of its huge disadvantages, structural disadvantages compared with the computer, particularly the incredibly slow speed of brain operations, and working predictively. If you ask someone, at least in the early days of robotics, what the biggest problem with robotics is, they would say, you know, making things capable of walking around without falling over. That turns out to be a really tricky problem, even when you're working with megahertz processors in the computer that's controlling the robot, because the slightest delay in how the robot reacts to the terrain that it's trying to walk over uh, will upset everything, it'll fall over. We do that trivially with a nervous system that works with a kind of hertz level of response <laughs> rather than megahertz. It's quite extraordinary yeah. that we can do that. And one of the mechanisms that people have suggested might be used is some kind of predictive process within the brain, which is informing the rest of the brain what is most likely to be happening in the world. So I think this is an interesting example of that. When you hear uh, a description of what you're going to see, it seems to set up your visual system for looking for and understanding that kind of thing. So that's, that was the, the, the basis of this um, very simple experiment. I mean, what we did was, and the work was done, by the way, on, online, which was, for me, was a new experience. It's simply great. You spend, you know, two months designing an experiment. You put it up online. Next day, you come back and all your data are there. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, what, what we did was to show people sequences of uh, images, uh, which were very hard to see, to understand. 
There's a very famous picture of a Dalmatian dog. You probably know it. Most people have seen it now. It's a photograph, a high contrast, just black and white splotches, splotches and blobs. Um, it's a real photograph which has just been processed, processed to make it pure black and white. And it's a Dalmatian dog against a background of snow. And, you know, it's, it's just impossible initially to see where the dog begins and the snow ends. You can't see anything but just a set of blobs. But you look at it for a while and most people within about, I mean, literally 30 seconds or 60 seconds, see the dog. And they never unsee it, by the way. <laughs> um, see right. that picture again and instantly the dog's there. And interestingly, and, that, and one of the reasons why he did this work was because I'd used this trick in lectures a, a lot and could never really understand what was going on. Once you've seen the Dalmatian dog and you've got it, if you now look at it mirror reversed the other way around, you recognize it virtually as quickly as if you're looking at it the right way around. So whatever it is that your brain has stored, whatever kind of template it has recognized and adopted as a result of, of understanding that dog image, now can be applied to different views of the same dog, even to the extent of uh, a mirror reversal. So we're interested in that process, um, how the brain does it, how it accumulates evidence over a long period of time, and secondly, whether the process could be facilitated by spoken information or written information, by hints in advance. So show the picture of the Dalmatian dog and in advance say, this is a picture of an animal. It turns out that, it, that people are faster, at least on the first presentation, in right. to recognize something. If you say it's a Dalmatian dog, they're faster still. So the brain is able to impose that prior knowledge from speech onto visual processing in some way. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, um, going back to thinking about computers, the, this is brains as, uh, exceptionally good in uh, heuristics generation and storage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, this heuristics uh, that it creates from experience uh, is stored away and it can go back to those heuristics. Both the retrieval and selection of those heuristics appear to be extremely fast. And we haven't been able to do that in the in the computer world anywhere, anywhere close to that. Um, you know, large amounts of data, we can, you know, uh, train a computer to recognize dogs and cats with very large amounts of data. And it does it reasonably well, but it also fails if it, you know, uh, if it's given a case uh, that's completely different. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, the brain appears to be really efficient in some ways to discard information, in my view. Uh, I want to get your perspective on this, Colin. So because it's getting so much information, the real problem is to, to discard most of it and take the most important parts and then reduce that to a usable heuristic for the future. That it does really well, I think. I think you're right. And perhaps it's part of a general principle that the the brain is is driven towards economy towards doing things yeah. in the simplest possible way and there are lots of reasons for that one is this question of processing time the brain doesn't have time to do an awful lot of exhaustive processing um, uh, another one is is you know storage capacity 
the brain doesn't have infinite storage. It doesn't have the cloud to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to store all previous memories, and it's got to do things highly efficiently. I mean, vision, vision is a very good example. You know, we have maybe 110 million photoreceptors, um, each of which has a certain, you know, bandwidth and probably megahertz of stuff pouring into the brain from the eyes every second. And yet yeah. a wealth of evidence suggests that the brain has to compress that within a channel limit of perhaps 50 bits of information. A second to process for making decisions. Now the other stuff might be used in other ways, for instance, to control movement and posture and balance and so on. But at a cognitive level, all of the things which are pouring in have to be reduced to a very low capacity system. That means you have to throw away an awful lot. And you have to forget an awful lot because you can't store it. So actually the evolution of the brain, or at least cognitive process in the brain, has been driven by this requirement to save energy to save space, to save time. And it's also starving for energy, right? Yeah. So the, um, because it's it's pretty efficient, but the body can't really feed it a lot of energy. You know, about 20% of the energy circulating in your bloodstream is used by your brain. It's an incredibly hungry, energetically hungry um, organ. Um, and people yeah. have calculated that perhaps only as few as 3% of the neurons in your brain can actually be, be producing an impulse at the same time um, within the energy limitations. So everything's driven by this requirement for, um, uh, for efficiency, minimizing energy expenditure. And that, I think, has had, in computational terms, some huge benefits, which have not yet really imposed themselves on... on um, on computing in the normal sense, on engineering-based yeah. yeah. computing, because there is no problem, you know, the uh, the hardware <laughs> just gets more and more um, efficient. It's easier and easier just to store everything and to to crunch through every possible number. I mean, for the this distinctive difference, for instance, between at least early chess playing programs and the way that chess masters play, even though they can perform very similarly, um, it's completely different. The, com the com computer approach to playing chess originally before deep learning was just to run exhaustively at an incredible speed through every possible move when the machine looked at the board and then make a right. rational decision about the best one to play. The human performer couldn't possibly do that and had to impose all kinds of prior knowledge about previous games, for instance, about, you know, about likelihoods and, and, and patterns and characteristics of the organization, the pieces on the board that were of no interest or knowledge um, to, the, to the computer. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's why, Colin, I object to this term artificial intelligence. Um, what we have found so far is not really intelligence. We, it's really mechanistic, as you say, exhaustive search yeah. in the present of, you know, uh, cheap uh, hardware and, and infinite storage. Uh, and, and that doesn't, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, which is unless we hit the physical constraints in terms of computing capacity and memory and, and, and really efficiency, mm. unless we hit physical capacities, we will continue on a route that will never get us to anywhere close to what the brain actually does, right? Because yeah. we can all 
throw more silicon at the problem, but that's not really solving the problem. It just yeah. <laughs> just making it. Well, um, yeah, I, I I agree completely with you. And you know, I'm now living in in China where. Um, brain-inspired intelligence is such a pervasive buzz phrase that it's hard to escape from this, I think, quite naive notion that just by studying the brain, we're going to make better computers. We need to think more deeply about the constraints, as we say, on what it is that brains do and what computers do. I think there are two reasons for optim optimism, actually, that there might be departures in computing that will bring us closer to understanding how the brain works and how that knowledge will then impact on the organization of computers. And those two areas are robotics, dealing with yeah. the real world, faces computers with the same kinds of problems that evolution solved in making brains. And secondly, of course, uh, deep learning, AlphaGo, uh, DeepMind, these kinds of approaches to computing, which are so so different in many respects from conventional algorithmic um, uh, computing. And it is possible that that will bring us closer to under an understanding of how brains do it and make computing systems more similar to brains in the way that they organize their processes. Right. So, so call it in conclusion, you know, if you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will make sort of the most interesting discovery from a brain perspective? Where, 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 is, where is the sort of the highest probability uh, discovery going to happen? What area? Well, if I told you what, um, yeah, what I really <laughs> expected, I might be giving things away. No, I, I do think personally, I think that this whole question of the organization of long range connections within the brain is fascinating and important um, and it's my thinking on that is is driven by recent uh, findings which are just so unexpected about the capacity of the brain to to form new long-range connections for instance regrowing um, axons to the optic nerve changing the connections in the language system of the brain on the basis of the linguistic environment in which a child is growing up formation of the connections from the word recognition system into the rest of the language area. All of these seem to me to be examples of the way in which the brain is able to change itself in its very long range connections. Um, coupled with the, the new methodologies that are available for analyzing connections in the human brain and this huge investment in what's called connectomics, um, I think that you know, big advances will be made in that area. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Colin. Thanks so much for spending well, time you, with me. Well, thank you, Neil. It's been fun. And uh, have a nice evening. I'm just about to start a nice day. You too. Thank bye you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.